Hello, friends. Two weeks already. A lot has happened since the last episode. First of which is that it is a new month, which means we are donating a portion of our Patreon proceeds to a BIPOC-led organization. This month, we are donating to the National Digital Inclusion Network. This organization is working to close the digital divide and provide internet access to students in low-income homes who now have to learn remotely due to COVID-19. They also do a lot of other cool stuff, and you can find out more info on them at digitalinclusion.org. Speaking of Patreon proceeds, we have new patrons to welcome to the horny little community. Big shout outs to Jackie Perrin, Wiley Boshogorn, and Kenzie Bison. They join the ranks of Sean McStravick, Hallie Alspa, Alyssa Matthews, Krista Umberforth, Hannah Grierson, who upped her pledge, Grace Kent, Chandler Parrott Thomas, and Dante Tapo. If you want to be like these amazing folks and have a portion of your monthly donation go to a good cause, you can head over to patreon.com slash thatdoitforyapod to learn more. You can also access extras and bonuses and free transcriptions of episodes all there right on the Patreon. Also, new this week, if you tweet at us at that do it for you and tell us what your sexual awakening was we will read it here on the pod for example our top tweet this week was from eden palomino and she tweeted after much consideration i've decided my sexual awakening was the prom episode of gray's anatomy then she clarified and said okay i take it back star wars episode three was my sexual awakening in a love and romantic sense the gray's episode was my i'm allowed to not love but still think things are hot awakening. Thank you so much for sharing, Eden. This is true bravery. Okay, that's all the updates I have. I loved recording this episode with my dear friend Bill DeMeritt. You can catch him this fall in The Flight Attendant on HBO Max, or maybe you already saw him in the 2014 HBO version of The Normal Heart, or perhaps you've seen him in the esteemed stages of Oregon Shakespeare Festival. He gives us an incredible lesson in comic book history, and we have a great time doing it. So without further ado, please enjoy episode 19 of That Do It For You, Holy Hotties Batman with Bill DeMeritt. Do you want to rub on Simba's tummy? Or think that Spider-Man looks extra yummy? The pain of childhood is super funny. On Did That Do It For Ya? With Aurelia Grierson. <laughs> Hello and welcome to That Do It For Ya podcast. I am here with the incredible and very handsome Bill DeMeritt. Very kind. Uh, Bill, how are you? I am better than I've been the last couple of weeks. That's good. That's good. That's, you know, everything has begun. I always feel really weird asking that question because like, how are any of us? I, I have lately been forgetting my actual age. Well, um, <laughs> I did not know how old you are. But it's so, uh, I wonder how old you, you thought I was. I did not think that you were in <laughs> the, the, the where I was. I did not think you were where you, I'm not going to like, I know that like actors need to like keep that shit on lock, but like I did not, you had me fooled. So good for you. Not deliberately. No, no, no. But that's good. Okay. That's good. Oh, great. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully the face will uh, be relatively crack free until <laughs> this pandemic is over. And Woo! I can just, I'm just trying to get like those one or two series regulars and just that, just like two Marvel movies and then, and then it can all end. Um, I mean, just... I think, I think Marvel will definitely survive this. There's lots of other things that won't, but Marvel will. Marvel will. I'm the most successful film um, studio in history. Yes. They'll be fine. Well, I mean, they're under the Disney umbrella. Yeah, but I mean, but they are, as a studio, they are the most successful film studio in history. <sighs> Sluts. So, Bill, how do we know each other? <laughs> we know each other uh, from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I said it that way. Sorry, you, what a dumb I, actor. No, it's okay. Uh, I remember the first time I met you. Oh, God, I'm sorry. No, it's more embarrassing about me. How so? You were at Sakana in Ashland, Oregon. Oh, yeah. A really delicious sushi bar that has wonderful cocktails as well. And I was with our mutual friend and friend of the pod and patron, patron of the pod, Krista Umberforth. They were talking to your wife. Cassandra, we can say her name. Yeah. We can say her name. I don't have to believe it. No, no. I hope, I'm hoping that she'll come on as a guest. Um, but y'all, they were talking and then I introduced myself to you because I knew that you were going to be in Indecent and that I was understudying mm. in Indecent. Yes, yes. We had a whole talk about that. Yeah, I would like some friends and you were very nice to me right off the bat, which cannot, you know, you can't, you, you don't always know. It's going to be a gamble with, with people. People are the worst. And also, so it, I, you say you're embarrassed, but clearly we're friends. So I was wearing a really embarrassing outfit. What was embarrassing about it? I looked like a Coke dealer from Ireland. No, no, no. I, I remember the first two times I met you. Just I just thought you had like a really cool style. Thank you. But also, um, it's Ashland. So even if you did look like an Irish cocaine dealer, and I don't really know that I know what that looks like. I mean, there, there are people there doing, for your listeners who may not <laughs> be familiar with Ashland, it's a magical fairyland of transients often. So the <laughs> fashion, fashion ranges from what we call trustafarians. Uh, mm you know, the like affluent 
blonde white people with dreadlocks who decided to walk <laughs> the earth like cane and kung fu for a year um so they're like <laughs> fake homeless so it, it ranges from that to like really affluent retirees oh, i just mentioned two groups of affluent so yeah it ranges from poor like fake poor affluent to like actual affluent so the fashion is all over the place oh yeah and then there's people that live in medford that aren't affluent at all um and then there are the actors that come in uh like me my first year they're like oh i'm from new york like looking like a new york asshole or la asshole because i guess i'm halfway one of those two no i would say that i didn't look like either group that you just described in ashland i was wearing like this tracksuit oh yes the tracks yeah you remember this outfit now like it was like the french flag on top and then the red sweatpants and then just like no, that's cool basketball shoes very different look than what you've got going right now i've changed i still love sneakers i do not ball ball is not life for me personally ball is not life yeah no i just i just i never assumed for you that it would be so yeah so like but I, I know that sometimes people look at my shoe collection and think that I ball. I just like the aesthetic. I'm just being appropriative. Then they haven't kept up with fashion for like the past three decades because plenty of people have a closet full of Jordans that don't play any basketball whatsoever. In fact, I have three pairs of Jordans. Only one do I play basketball and the other two are strictly fashion choices. See, there you go. You understand. But anyway, that's what an Irish Coke dealer looks like in case you're curious. It's a very specific reference. Maybe I'll watch Peaky Blinders or something. I'll understand. <laughs> Peaky Blinders is like old Irish Coke dealers. I, I know. I know. It's just the only <laughs> Irish Coke dealer. Oh, like you got to watch Dairy Girls. That'll give you kind of an idea. Oh, um, yeah. I thought about watching that. It is really that. funny. I think you would enjoy it very much. Cass would definitely enjoy it. Yeah. No, it's on the list. It's on the list. There's a long list of things that I want to watch that my wife says she wants to watch, <laughs> but she has to be in a very specific mood to watch certain things. So I either have to never watch them or just watch them when I feel like it and she's not around. And then possibly deal with her being upset that I watched it, even though we're never going to get around to watching it together. That's like a very specific brand of betrayal in a relationship. <laughs> yeah. I Yes. And slash, but if the other person says they want to watch it, but every time you suggest watching it, they never want to watch it and they never suggest watching it on their own volition, then what is a person supposed to do? Especially when like <laughs> one of the things is comic book related and not only am I passionate about that, but I'm working on like two comic book specific projects. So like I need to consume media that is comic related, you know what I mean? And also one of my friends is in it and I still haven't fucking seen the thing. So yeah, I really. Oh, you have to tell me what this is. I still haven't watched Watchmen. Oh, what? As a black person, as a comic nerd, as as someone that works in television sometimes and as someone that is friends with Yaya Abdul Mateen and like I have to watch the thing sorry dude if you're listening to this yeah I haven't watched the show yet sorry uh sorry dude I have and it's phenomenal yeah every everyone everyone says it is I'm really not a comic book person I'm not a comic book person but I loved the shit out of that yeah it's supposed to be great like from a historical perspective from a dork perspective from a just well-made tv perspective acting I mean he's he's nominated for an Emmy so is Regine King right so uh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I need to watch the show. You do, but I, I understand. I yeah, I know. I do understand that. <laughs> I feel like mine and Wiley's watch list has gotten like exponentially longer since we've had all the time in the world to watch things. I think it came out in February. I think it came out around Black History Month. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And and I didn't watch it then because it was in the whole like life. Are you going to watch it with anything? <laughs> and, and now it's really difficult for me to watch anything remotely heavy mm -hmm. because I've been in an emotional abyss for a while now the first part of quarantine i was doing really well and then we got back to new york we were in california and my wife and i got back to new york at the beginning of july and like since the beginning of july it's just been a steady steady and precipitous like emotional chasm and bottoming out which i think i'm coming out of as of the last couple of days yeah so it's just been hard for me to watch anything that's heavy fair fair enough yeah. i cried watching a johnny cash music video the other day <laughs> <laughs> now here's the thing it's, it's a particularly profound it's the video for his cover of hurt i don't know if you've ever seen the video yeah i love johnny yeah. cash yeah right so the, the video is a basically a visual retrospective of his life and he made it when he was i think he only i think he died pretty soon after the song came out uh and i'm a huge johnny cash fan i haven't watched it in a long time so so seeing that retrospective of a great troubled and complex man at the end of his life, revisiting his entire life over an incredibly moving and profound and, and difficult song. And then just with everything that I'm, that we're all, but me specifically dealing with, I just sit, I was just like, okay, I'm crying. I'm watching a Johnny Cash video right now. Yeah, I think that it's really not abnormal to be brought to tears by Johnny Cash. No, I'm not, I'm not saying it's abnormal, but I, but I don't think I ever had been. Oh. Yeah, it's been, there's just been, I think, one day a week, at least where I'm just crying for, for either a reason that 
I wouldn't usually cry about or just for, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just crying. Just crying right now. I mean, that's, I'm sorry that you're like dealing with with such emotional turmoil and and having like a hard time. I like, I I know. And I also just want to say like, I'm so like happy that you're my friend because it means a lot that you're the type of person who can admit to crying? Well, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a good Jewish boy, so how can you're I? A good not? Jewish boy. Oh, happy Elul. Um <laughs> Yes, happy one of our many holidays. I uh, tweeted this, but I feel like it bears repeating on this podcast because I was talking about the difference between Elul and Lent. Oh, let's talk and and please expand <laughs> upon that. So I mean, it's like it, you know, it's the month leading up to uh, the high holy days and Yom Kippur, and you know, our our day where we repent and we feel bad. I mean, yeah, compared to every other day of the year. Yeah. Yeah, John Stewart, John Stewart used to say, you know, Lent, we got Yom Kippur one day versus a week, even in senior paying retail, but truly, but like for, if you're like a little more on the hardcore side and not just a high holy day Jew, and I'm not saying I'm like a hardcore person. I've just like in my copious amounts of spare time, my practice has gotten deeper. Oh, good for you. Thank you. I am like, you know, <laughs> learning about halal and I'm like, oh, this is similar to Lent because it's like a month where you're supposed to kind of like take stock of your life and think about the things you have in excess and the the places where you where you feel like you could use more. And it's actually similar to Lent in a lot of ways, except I feel like in true Catholic form, like Lent is very much about like punishment and deprivation, whereas like with it's Elul is like the Jewish version of that where it's like no you're just gonna think about what you've done yeah jewish stuff is about questioning Mm -hmm. and remembering events that happened and a lot of christianity (laughs) seems to be about feel bad feel bad (laughs) also do also do good things do good things but also feel bad about this thing that you did do good things you have to do good things because you feel bad exactly the christianity is whole thing but yeah so happy a lull i guess all right so to kind of circle back to something we were talking about when we were talking about watchmen you mentioned that you were a comic book nerd and yeah i begged and pleaded you to be on this podcast it's not why i'm doing it I, I, i pretty much agreed pretty quickly you did you were down for a lot of my guests when I tell them kind of the initial idea, there's like a what moment, but thanks for being cool. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so you were a comic book nerd and yeah. you told me what you wanted to talk about today. I was very excited Great. because this is not a world that I'm super familiar with. And Great. I love when I get to kind of learn about something new for the podcast. Mm, okay. Try to try to not misinform. I don't want you to get nasty letters. Uh, so what are we talking about today? We're talking about comic book stuff. Yeah. So for me, as a as a young boy growing up in the decade of Murrah, <laughs> so the way my life worked as a, as a kid was my dad died when I was very young. So my mom and I lived in the Bronx and my maternal grandmother, Grandma Sadie, very much a New York Jew, <laughs> she lived in Manhattan in the apartment uh, I live in now. So mom would take me to school from the South Bronx where we lived to the lowercase Upper West Side. It's like right off Central Park South. So it's, you know, 66-ish. And then Grandma Sadie would pick me up from school and then I would spend, you know, until after work with Grandma Sadie. So I could watch my shows, but like only after her programs. She had to watch her programs, which were... I don't don't know if I remember the sequence that they came on in, but it was uh, The Price is Right. And it was... The Young and the Restless. And then later she started watching The Bold and the Beautiful. So I could watch my shows only after, I couldn't watch anything before her shows came on. So I guess by the time her shows were over, it was on in syndication because these shows were on in the late 60s and early 70s. But I would watch the Batman 60s show with Adam West and Burt Ward. And I would watch uh, Wonder Woman with Linda Carter. And a lot of people, especially because I'm a grown man that still uh, reads comics, they assume that there's some kind of sexual fetish for me that goes on with it. And, and there actually isn't. Like I've dated women. They're like, do you want me to dress up like Catwoman? Like, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't. I don't want that. Like for Halloween, yeah, that would be cool. But like that, that's it. So I appreciate them on very different levels, right? But watching these shows as a, as a, the Batman 60s show and, and Wonder Woman as a young boy who hadn't yet had the birds and bees conversation, I just remember being particularly enthralled with some <laughs> of the women on these shows and not, not thinking about why, but then also when I thought about why, not like understanding why. And I had a very different reaction. I think some of it, I guess we can say that Linda Carter's Wonder Woman was probably one of my first, one of my first big, I don't know, crushes or objects of desire. And she is 
I don't know if if everyone knows this. I think it's it's. I don't think it was ever a secret. It's certainly something that's more discussed now than it was in the seventies. But she's she's half Mexican. Oh. Um. Her her name is Linda something something Cordova Carter because her mom is a is from Mexico and I believe of Spanish descent. So she's like Mexican Spanish or something like that. I had no idea. And so she's a light skinned Latina uh, who's half Mexican. And then you know fast forward a couple of decades and I marry a light skinned Latina who's half Mexican. So I don't I don't know if there's a straight <laughs> line. I don't I, you know cor- you know. Uh, what is it? Correlation is not causality, but who knows? True. Who knows? So yeah, so Linda Carter, and then on the Batman sixty show, there was this. It's and and it's real. I know that you hadn't watched the Wonder Woman show until you were researching the show, but you had been familiar with the Batman sixty show. Yeah. And as a kid, they're fun, and maybe even in a, as an adult, maybe to some extent, they're they're fun, but they're not good. They're not good. Shows. Trust me, as a campy queer person who loves campy okay. queer things, I love. Adam West Batman so much and I loved getting to watch the episodes that I picked to watch so thank you what a gift but no they're not good they're campy and awful and wonderful it it makes it makes no sense uh (laughs) to take a character like Batman and make him not just you can I think you can I think there is a line that you can cross where campy becomes somewhat hetero I think maybe it's possible I ha- I have thoughts on this but I want to hear what you have to say well and maybe not hetero I think there it's possible for things to be campy without them necessarily being queer or or gay right and I don't I think it's clear I hope I don't mean this in any way pejorative but like there's nothing not gay about the Batman 60s like, <laughs> there's nothing not nothing. gay about it <laughs> there's not there's nothing not okay gay and I I say as like a as a queer person with queer parents who's like knows maybe a handful of people who are like strictly straight i love there's nothing straight about adam west batman nothing there's there's no and and even as a boy who didn't you know when you're like four or five years old and i'm not i'm I'm not queer so i'm I'm not trying to you know uh like wade into waters that aren't my uh my purview but you know i think a lot of people when they're four or five you don't you don't have a sexual identity necessarily so if you're gay you don't even know what gay is maybe and certainly as a hetero boy i had no idea what the fuck gay was right and we're all we're all you know there's and you know sexualized on a spectrum and we all have bisexual tendencies even though some people don't admit it and all that other shit but i just remember watching and being like this is a weird batman and robin relationship like this doesn't seem this doesn't seem like professional. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is, there's not, this is no. not the relationship they have in the comic book. They are boyfriends in this show. Yeah, and and it's sort of, for me, it's like a chicken and egg thing because I know that the Batman 60s show, especially with Julie Newmar and Eartha Kitt, like there's a lot of mm. gay iconography on it. Mm. And I'm like, which came first? Were there gay people involved in the creation of the show? And like, they're like, oh, we got this? Or or did the, did gay culture adopt it after hipping out i'm just i don't know Um, i want to do research on this now because when i was like after i'd watched what i wanted to watch and then did the research i was so focused on eartha kit because i think eartha kit is so phenomenal just like as a person in who lived in this world and so i was like really preoccupied with that but now like i just didn't really question the queerness of this batman and i thought in so many weird ways i was like i feel like this is created just for me and my tastes but so there so also there was the super friends cartoon which i don't know if you know about the super friends is it like justice league so the super friends is the, it's the kids version of the justice league it got is it. the justice league got it but it's a it's a not even a kid-friendly show. It's strictly for kids. And I don't think there's any of that Ren and Stimpy, Simpsons sort of like subversive for adults. No, it's just like strictly for strictly kids. Strictly for children. And Burt Ward and Adam West also played Batman and Robin on that show. <laughs> and then I was thinking about the other cartoons I watched at the time, like Thundercats ah! and, and, and He-Man, Masters of the Universe. Also gay. Yes, and this is what I'm saying. So many of the cartoons, especially like the superhero type cartoons, Super Friends, He-Man, Thundercats. Thundercats. Super gay. Super and gay. And again, I don't mean I don't mean this in any kind of pejorative sense. No, I mean, not like, at all. I don't take it as such. I mean Panthro, who was the one, it's funny how even so there's like the the gay not even connotations, the gay overtones and then the racism that was uh, rife and the sexism that was rife uh, in all this programming that was par for the course in the 80s and mm-hmm. 90s uh, is amazing. And even at the time, I was like, something's up with this. But in the late 70s and early 80s, I don't know how it happened and I loved it. <laughs> Urban Black culture, not like there's some monolith of Black culture, but just to for sake of conversation. Urban black culture really adopted Kung Fu and like Bruce Lee, right? So you had a lot of brothers when I was young, like wearing almost geese and and they just wear like that little Bruce Lee top or the shoes, 
you know, with like whatever outfit they had. And Panthro, so from the Thundercats was probably mid 80s, maybe. Panthro was clear, and you'd have these cartoons where they weren't even human. No. Like Thundercats, for example, where, yeah. where they were, you know, cat people. But there was clearly <laughs> one that was black. Like clearly one that was, which is amazing because yeah. Panthro, he was the Black Panther. He was gray, but he was, he was a Panther. And, you know, he had a voice. He had like one of these James Earl Jonesy type of Barry White. Hey, <laughs> and he, and he was the guy that took care of the car. He was like the tech guy, but the main thing was the Thunder Tank, which was their car. So it's the black guy is clearly a, 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 either a black actor or a white guy doing like his version of a black actor. <laughs> he was the mechanic and he had, you know, they all had like swords and ray guns and shit. He had nunchucks. And he also wore, I don't know what we call it, like a bandolero, like just the... Just a cross, right? Just a cross yeah. with like spikes on it. Yeah. I'm like, this is clearly black. And also <laughs> he's wearing, he's wearing like, you know, a leather... The leather, it's a leather harness. He was wearing a harness. Yeah. You wearing I've a harness. Seen, I've seen some Thundercats. <laughs> like, so we're doing a lot of queer black stuff and not saying it and... Not naming it. Yeah. And He-Man is just... So gay. There's nothing about that show that's not. I just, I think it's, it's interesting to, to put stuff out like that in the world and intentionally not comment on it being gay, which is subversive. I think if something like that came out now or even, even in the 90s, it would have been, oh, subversive. Like we're going to sneak down this gay shit and this racial commentary and they're not going to know. Yeah. But I feel like with Thundercats. It's there. It, I, I, I don't know if there's any thought behind the gayness of the Batman 60s show or He-Man or super friends or whatever. I keep always forgetting one of the shows we're talking about. But <laughs> so I, I wish I could go back in time to that writer's room, if there were even writer's rooms back then. And were there queer people on staff that were like, we're going to sneak in some shit and they're not going to know? Or was there something, right? because marginalized groups, be it black people or, or, or LGBTQ people, there's a way that society and, and media make them palatable by neutering them. Yeah. Right. Of yeah. their power or their sexuality. Yeah. Right. So like the gayness that you had in all those shows, Batman, He-Man. Yeah. Super Friends, it was all like a very neutered, safe yes. gayness, which we mm -hmm. could like laugh at or with and feel safe and comforted and intrigued. But it was really safe. And the same thing with like the black representation on the show. It was always, it was always safe. Quote and unquote, safe so I'm yeah. wondering if there's something in, you know, an, a not out Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. Not saying Super Friends was produced by Hollywood per se, but right? Media. Yeah. Wanting to put their stories out. Why put their stories out, but but needing to somehow sanitize it in a way, right? So maybe were there queer people on staff that were like, we need to water this shit down? Or was it that straight people are writing it and like gay is funny and gay is safe if we do it a certain way. So we need to make this safe and entertaining. So we're going to make it gay. Did any of that make sense? Yeah, that all made sense. It's an interesting that you brought this up because I was doing research about Wonder Woman and the creation of Wonder Woman was actually William Moulton Marston. Yes. Super bondage SNM and super bondage polyamorous. SNM. Exactly. So then let, like, let's talk about Wonder Woman because I really, I'd never seen this before. And I, I mean, I, there's problems obviously that are present with a piece of media that's going to be made in the, in the late seventies. Yeah. yeah. Watching it as a queer person, as someone who was socialized female, it, Ooh, it has had so many thoughts about that. And then like researching about its inception and like how these are, how, cause comic books are for all intents and purposes the, these are this is the american folklore like this is our these are our stories that we tell about ourselves and it's modern mythology we've replaced it is modern mythology. The pantheon and, exactly uh, the greek pantheon with that and i think it's so interesting that dc seems to have and this is just my opinion oh, as someone who is oh. not versed in the oh. comic books <laughs> i feel like you're about to say some truth but go for it dc is better at women Oh, can I, when I think women from comic books, I think Wonder Woman and I think Catwoman off the top of my head immediately. And it's like, I just felt like both watching Eartha Kitt and Linda Carter do play these women that are both subversive in really interesting ways. And like Eartha Kitt being a black woman, being the first- First black woman to play that role, yeah. First black woman to play that role in what is still a very segregated society, like just coming off of civil rights, Eartha Kitt is in what is now a mixed television show. That's very gay and campy and she's a gay icon. And so just as a quick thing, there were three cat, the show, the Batman show was on for three years. Mm -hmm. There were three different cat women. Mm -hmm. Julie Newmar, who did the first two seasons. Then I think in between season two and three, they did the movie and she was contracted to another film where she played a Native American. Uh, so they, so she wasn't in the movie. So Lee Merriweather took that role. And then when the show came back, Julie Newmar wasn't on it. We don't really know why. And they replaced her with Eartha Kitt. But because Earth Kit was black, they removed the romantic storyline 
between Batman and Catwoman for the Eartha Kitt seasons. Well, fuck them. So she was on the show. So, I mean, progressive that Well, then way. that's it. But then, that, again, like, that leads me to the point I was actually trying to make about neutered sexuality. Because the creation of Wonder Woman isn't, like, in its, like, of the comic is, like, a very, is actually a very queer story. But you mentioned that you think DC is better at women. I do. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I, I love both Marvel and DC, and they think they do very different things very well. The advantage DC has that Marvel will frankly never be able to catch up to is, and and this is DC at its heart. I'm not talking about the films because that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But in terms of the IP itself, in terms of the intellectual property itself, DC has created the three archetypes that all superheroes somehow stem from, right? They have the Ubermensch, which is Superman. Then they have Batman, who is the perfection of humanity, right? So those are two opposite ends, but also Superman represents the light and the hope and Batman represents- The dark and the shadows? The darkness, either working from the darkness or being consumed by the darkness, but they're the two opposite ends, Mm -hmm. right? And then Wonder Woman, who is, who has gone through, and again, just talking about the comics, so many different incarnations, but Wonder Woman is the the ideal woman. And also she represents something different. She represents truth first and foremost, right? And my favorite thing about Wonder Woman is that she stands for truth and love, but if all else fails, she will murder you with a fucking sword. Uh, So she's, so she's this incredible maternal and eternal warrior who wants to fight and she's an ambassador in the comic books now also right so so she is literally a symbol and uh, ambassador for truth who also will kill people every other hero has descended from these three in terms of of comic books with marvel had one contribution and look i love wolverine i love the hulk there are a lot of great heroes but Spider-Man. Oh, great! Is, so Spider-Man changed the dynamic of uh, superhero archetypes because he was the everyman. He was an adolescent, and they, they've still like sometimes he's grown up, sometimes they've kept him as an adolescent. But Marvel brought real-world stakes to it because it was like he had to go, you know, fight Doctor Octopus or save his girlfriend or his aunt, but he also had to do his homework. Yeah. So it brought a groundedness and a reality to comics that they hadn't had. So Spider-Man's really the the other archetype, um, which still you know is sort of a descendant of Batman and Superman, but is also very much, he started a new branch of the tree. Yes. Let's say. Yes. And the way that I put it, and I think a lot of people put it, is that DC has the God characters, mm-hmm. right? Because even though Batman is human, like he's he's the peak of humanity, right? Sure. So they have the gods and Marvel has the more real world characters. And a lot of their characters, their powers come from science. Mm-hmm. The Fantastic Four, they were explorers who went to space. Cosmic rays, the Hulk, scientist, blew up, Iron Man, right? Science, Peter Parker, it's all these science-based heroes because it was the 60s when their stuff started coming out, which was a scientific age. It was space exploration and also a time of cultural upheaval with the civil yep. rights movement. So you have yep. characters like the X-Men who were inspired, you know, and there's there's some debate as to whether or not the story is apocryphal, but Stan Lee likes to say that he based, or Stan Lee liked to say when he was with us, that he based or took inspiration from Magneto and Professor Xavier for Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, oh. right? Yeah, he, he likes to say that. I don't know if it's if that's true, but that's what he says. But you know, with the X Men, they were disenfranchised people who had to fight for the very people that were oppressing them. Mm. Uh, and then most of the DC heroes came out in the forties yeah. um, and late thirties during you know the height of World War II and and, and immediately following it. So you had these. Yeah characters that had to be larger than life to stand for for larger than life concepts like freedom and saving the entire fucking world. Yes. I want I will want to talk about this also what you just brought up because immediately Wonder Woman the first shot of the first episode is the Nazis and there's a lot of Heil Hitler in the first episode which I was not prepared for today. Something that was like so jarring about watching this first episode was like we go to this island of these women who run around in negligees. Yeah, they're not really warrior outfits back on that. <laughs> no and like we're gonna talk about Paradise Island when we circle back to the queerness of Wonder Woman but just for now, I want to focus on the propagandic elements of both Batman and Wonder Woman. Okay. Because I was so, it just like felt so like, uh, when the, her mom gives her the American flag kind of outfit. Yeah. Very gorgeous. She looks great. So, but it has like the American flag little bottom and like, it was so like heavy handed because her mom is like, your outfit represents democracy and how you're going to fight for democracy. And like America kind of tells a story about their involvement in World War II that isn't very 
like actually in line with <laughs> what happened there? I, I, I mean, you know, it's it's easy to blame social media for a lot of things. I don't know on the pie chart where the percentage of responsibility falls. And I don't know, are we in the height of the social media age? Like, is there a time coming in the next decade? We're not that it's less prevalent, but like where our relationship with it changes because it's it's so toxic. Oh, please, will I be freed? Will I ever be freed from my curse? We are we are in the matrix, despite, you know, and I don't mean it in, I don't mean it in the way the red pill right winger nut job say it. But yeah, come at me. I said it. Huh. So that is say because social media is so toxic the way it is. Nuance as a concept has been destroyed. Sure. No one living human or no human who has existed in the real world, right? Not talking about mythical characters like Superman. No one is all good or all bad. No, no, with no, the, no. With the possible exception of Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but, but in general. Yes, right? yes. So, so no country, because a country is made up of people, right? Countries are not sentient being. So no country has a history which is entirely good or entirely bad. Right. Look, as a black Jew, I'm going to go on the record, you know, for all it's worth, America is, you know, as a comedian I used to respect a lot, Dennis Miller uh, once said years ago, we're still the greatest country in the world. It's just kind of like being the valedictorian of summer school, you know. Um, <laughs> now, I mean that more earnestly in a pre-Trump presidency because I think that his presidency has both diminished our standing uh, on the world stage in a profound way that's going to take many years to repair. If if it can be repaired, because the trust has been broken, but also has set us back in terms of policy, in terms of social justice, in terms of civil rights, in terms of environmental issues. But pre-Trump, sure, the, the narrative of why America was involved in World War II is very different than the reality, right? We, If it were not for Pearl Harbor, we would not have been involved in World War II, most likely. And certainly prior to Pearl Harbor, we were turning, literally turning away boatloads of Jews. So we are directly responsible as a nation for the murder of however many people were on those boats. That said, their motivations aside, there was clearly a right and wrong in that war. So when Wonder Woman was created in, in a very, I think, maybe necessarily jingoistic time where, you know, William Moulton Marston is a rare exception in that he was not a Jew because Batman, Superman, and uh, and Stan Lee's creations who came later, Stan Lieber is his, his given name. Comic books were mostly created by marginalized young Jewish kids who had nothing else that they could do. So they came up and, and you know, the big joke is that Superman is the ultimate Jewish hero because mm -hmm. he fled the homeland. He changed his name and Clark Kent, like only a Jew would come up with that. You know, I think when Wonder Woman was created in 1940, 41 or 43, it's, it's a, it's one of those, she was created at a time when we were trying to mobilize. Yeah the support we could. And I think draping her in the American flag and saying that it stood for democracy, it did then. Yeah. And yeah, sure, still segregation and all those things that were fucking atrocious that were happening in this country, it still stood for democracy, maybe not for everyone, but certainly in World War II, yes. it did. And, that, and then that was the big problem that a lot of soldiers had is that they were like, I was in England and they treated me great and I come home and I'm treated like shit. Yeah. And everything you said, like, is, that's context that is really important to provide. And again, to circle back to like, these are our American folktales. These are our, the stories that we tell about ourselves. And like, that makes total sense. I was just so like today in 2020, I was like, oh, wow, that's a moment of them being like, this is a symbol of democracy. And this is what it is. And I think right now, like I have such a hard time, like if I see an American flag on someone's truck. So I was, I was listening to one of my super, you know, New York liberally podcasts like Pod Save America, or uh, maybe it was, maybe it was uh, Missing America. And they were talking to this guy who is a member of British government or was a member of British government. He's a, he's a black guy. And they were talking about the influence of right-wing politics in England. And he said that the right in England has adopted the Union Jack, the British flag, as their symbol. Fascinating. And that the rest of the political establishment has allowed this to happen so that if you fly the Union Jack, if you fly the national flag of the UK, if you fly that, you are automatically lumped in with right-wing nationalists, ethnocentrists, racists. And it's like, how did they let that happen? And that is happening here. It should be okay to be patriotic. You can be patriotic and not be jingoistic. You can be patriotic and not be a nationalist right? You should take pride in the country in which you live. But yeah, there's now, maybe that's happening here. There's really a, a certain type of person, you know, speaking in very broad generalizations, who has a bumper sticker of a certain size on their vehicle with the American flag. And certainly in New York City, you don't see a lot of people, you know, that have 
well, no one has a lawn, right? But they don't have American <laughs> flags like in their window or yeah. whatever the fuck. Yeah. So yeah, we shouldn't allow the flag of this country to be co-opted by any one particular group. But when one particular group is so entrenched in power as they currently are, yeah. and the reputation that they are, I don't know if you want to say exposing or building uh, for this country, yeah, it might be hard to separate the flag from that. It's so interesting what you said about the Union Jack, and this is purely tangential, is that because I lived in Ireland for two years and they hate the Union Jack over there. Because they were an occupied fucking country. Exactly. For them, it's always like, you can't like wear anything with that on it. Like they hate it there. Just my context for living in Europe is that the Union Jack is bad. And of course, like Irish people are funny about it, but like they're funny about everything. Well, because humor comes from pain and Ireland has experienced a lot of fucking pain as a country. I've been kind of thinking a lot about how culture and trauma are so linked and how when people say like, oh, like there is no white culture, what that means. I was just thinking about it just because I'm thinking like so much about like, you know, our the culture that we share in Judaism is like very much like remember that we suffered. Culture has to do with shared experience. Yeah. Right. That yeah. primarily culture has to do with shared experience, uh -huh. either by geography or society or, or perhaps art. And yeah. when I talk about the black experience, I just did it and didn't even mean to, or black mm -hmm. culture. Yeah, it's not a monolith. It's not a monolith. I think it is both a misnomer and both true. Yeah. Because my black experience is vastly different from any other black experience, but also vastly different from black experiences of people who are darker than me because I'm mixed, right? Or people that are lighter than me who are mixed or people that grew up not in New York City, which for all its faults is the fucking liberal elite capital of the world, right? So... You know, if you're a black person growing up in Mississippi or Alaska or San Diego, you've had a very different experience than I At the same time, there are cultural touch touchstones that a lot of black people in America have. And even if you're a black person in London, you don't might not have those same cultural touchstones, but you do have the experience of being a dark-skinned person in a light-skinned world. Mm. But from my understanding and my experience as someone that is mixed, white doesn't have that. Irish has that scottish has that pick your country like oh, there's yeah. an, there's an italian experience there's a <laughs> irish experience there's an estonian experience but there's not a white white culture no, because no there is no umbrella that you could put them all under and that's the advantage of being in charge well yeah especially because whiteness was constructed well all race all but all, all race, race is constructed and everyone gains admission to the club because for a long time the oh, irish yeah, weren't yeah. white the irish weren't right? white for a long the time weren't white. the italians weren't white the jews weren't white yeah so whiteness um, is an ever-changing beast that depends on like which group depends is who the new bad guy is and uh -huh. the new bad guy has been a different form of brown person for a long time yeah i it's so yeah we, we got onto a heavy topic and i know that you're already like having a hard time so i didn't mean to like no 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 no, no. this we is, went here no, i was i was i was worried that i wasn't gonna sound like a person because i don't have a lot of conversations now you are doing so well and this is this is a great conversation. Thank you. I've also been uh, like storing up for this. Good. Right? This is, Good. I kind of have to, yeah. it's not that it's emotional labor. I'm not traumatized talking about this stuff. It's just that, yeah. you know, with like the pit of despair, I kind of only have a, a limited bandwidth. Sure. And I'm someone that before the pandemic, I think for the entirety of my life, I've been hyper-social. And now it's all I can do to return a text message. I think you're doing great. I'm so happy that we're talking and having this conversation, which feels good. And if you, like we can... Because I have other things we can talk about. No, I mean, we time. should, we should, we should, we left off somewhere with the creation of Wonder Woman and uh, the TV show. And then we somehow got into talking about the all right. So it's, oh, uh, boy. The... I, it's hard because it's like always kind of lurking in the back of our minds. We need to get back on track. I want to talk about sexy stuff. Okay. So let's talk about sexy stuff. Okay. And of course, like I want to acknowledge that like this has no bearing on your tastes today, as we have said, but I think it is so interesting that you were like, these are the two women that like made me feel like I had crushes and- Well, well, like, well. so so it's not that the two women made me feel like I have crushes. So like Linda Carter, yes, I mean- Gorgeous. A, 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 absolutely, Linda And Carter. also like, yeah, you're, you kind of married Wonder Woman. Which works for me. She's, she's shorter than Linda Carter, but that's about that, but that's about Linda it. Carter's but, tall. <laughs> Challenge Carter's tall. So, so Julie Newmar, who was the first Catwoman, oh. and Yvonne Craig, who played Batgirl. Batgirl, yeah. Who had that awesome purple suit, yeah, fucking yellow boots. Cute. Oh, cute. So I had I had it bad for Yvonne Craig and Julie Newmar. <laughs> when Eartha Kitt took over, she just confused me. Like it wasn't even <laughs> it wasn't even that I had it wasn't even that I had a crush on Eartha Kitt, but like Eartha Kitt was doing like Julie Newmar was a lot. She was purring and she was doing all this shit. And and to take nothing away from Julie Newmar. 
she, she is. I mean, look, to Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Like, she's a fucking icon, right? She was in a George Michael video, for fuck's sake, <laughs> at probably the age of, like, 60, doing almost a full split on her runway. So, <sighs> yeah, in a catsuit, she looked fucking badass. But but Julie Newmar's sexuality, although it was, like, upper percentile sexuality, it was, <laughs> still, it was still very much from a, you know, a male, white, traditional gaze of sexuality. Linda Carter, slightly subversive because, right, she's Latina, even if I didn't know that at the time, but I must have known it inside. Yes. But Eartha Kitt was her own thing. And like I said, it wasn't even that I had a crush on Eartha Kitt. I was just like, she scared me in some way. <laughs> I didn't understand what she was doing. It didn't seem, even within that campy world of the Batman 60 show, she seemed to be doing something else from the other actors because Eartha Kitt is, is her own fucking thing you know eartha kit lives in this nina simone area of like black icons where what they did does not go in a fucking box like at all it's just you know her, the way she spoke and like because with julie noir she put on a voice she didn't talk like that but like that's eartha kit's voice that is just how eartha kit that's speaks. just how she fucking talks <laughs> it's so, incredible yeah so so it's not that i had a crush on eartha kit but i was like you were confounded by Eartha Kitt. I was just, I was confounded by her. I was like, I don't understand, I don't understand what's happening. You are not um, the first man to be confounded by Eartha Kitt. <laughs> no, probably. That, yeah, probably. So, so yeah. So with, uh, with, with, with that in mind. Julie, yeah. So, so I, I can't say that Eartha Kitt was a crush, but, but Julie Newmar and Yvonne Craig and Linda Carter certainly were. And then I remember Brooke Shields, who. Right, you mentioned her. Yeah. She, I remember her as being the Jordash girl. But I think it was Levi's. Uh, so good job on advertisers putting that in my brain. I had a huge crush on her. And I remember in kindergarten or first grade or second grade, I got teased by my classmates for having a crush on Brooke Shields, which now when I think about it, Why? is so dumb. Like, Just Brooke Shields is hot. She's like notoriously hot. And sure, like Brooke Shields was probably underage at the time. But I mean, I was like You six, were also right? underage at the no, time. I was, I was, so I was way <laughs> underage. But, but Brooke Shields was uh, world recognized as being beautiful. A beautiful so why yeah, why like, were your classmates making fun of you? Because kids are assholes. Kids are such dicks. <laughs> kids are, and also I was picked on my whole life. Um, wah, wah, wah. Comic book nerd. Comic book nerd. Yeah. And now it's cool. And Yeah, uh, it's cool. Uh, now you're part of the zeitgeist. The fucking nerds today, they don't know what it's like to be a real nerd. <laughs> to talk though, I think, I mean, even though Eartha Kitt kind of does her own thing, I think the type of woman that was portrayed in these shows... Oh, it was very idealized. I mean, was very idealized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they always... And again, it goes back to this, the queer aesthetic and, mm -hmm. the, you know, Wonder Woman, and we have to talk about this at some point. Wonder Woman comes from a BDSM origin. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Batman, especially with Catwoman, he's always being dominated and tied up. Yes. And teased. Like, yes. teased teased in terms of like picked on and teased in terms of, of sexually picked on also, you know, and then that's kind of made more funny by the fact that it never looked like Batman really wanted to fuck any of those. Ones. No, he's content <laughs> with his little twink boyfriend. Because <laughs> he's, it's just two twinks, really. Like they're both, they're both twinks. And they're really no, it's just, I mean, what is, what we're actually seeing yeah. there, which I think is really, I think, I, I am so curious now I'm going to do like a little research project about like the queerness of that creation of that show and like if there were queer people involved because what is actually represented there is there's this thing where in a lot of queer male relationships with this like kind of older man and a younger guy yeah and that is like just so prevalent in this relationship between Batman and Robin it's like okay well Batman's like the old rich guy with like the cute yep, with like his young ward. boyfriend. Yeah. There, there was a lot of, there was also, right. So a lot of these creators of, of comics, Bob Kane and Bill Finger, who created Batman, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who created Superman, Stan Lee, Stan Lieber, who created most of the great Marvel heroes or is credited at least with creating most of the great Marvel heroes. Most of them were closeted. And I don't mean closeted sexually. I mean, closeted. Secret Jews. They were not out about their Jewishness. Yeah. I don't know if any of them were queer or associated with the queer community or had a cousin or whatever. But certainly there was a thing going on, whether it was Batman and Robin, whether it was the Green Hornet and Kato, whether it was Captain America and Bucky. There was a thing of, of characters created around the World War II era where a lot of them had a best bud who was younger, who was their sidekick, who was often their ward. We, now, some of that was them trying to market to kids and putting a, a younger character in there to appeal to kids. But a lot of it was like, well, why are you living with this old dude? <laughs> You're living um, with this old Guy? You know, but part of it also just I think mores were also just different. It's not like there wasn't pedophilia and creepiness there, but there was it wasn't automatically suspect necessarily. Or who knows? I wasn't alive in the fifties. Maybe it was suspect, but like it's there's a lot of media outwards like oh it's a guy and his young 
male friend. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. And then I think then I was so curious then because yeah, it did seem like that. I mean, there's clearly no sexual relationship between the Earth the Kit Catwoman and right, which they wrote Adam, out, because which they wrote out black. because she's black. I mean, I wouldn't. I I didn't watch anything but the Earth the Kit because I wasn't no you offense. Watch Julie Newmar. Oh. I didn't want to watch Julie. I why if you have Earth the Kit there, I don't. Julie Newmar is not Earth the Kit, but Julie Newmar is not to be fucked with. Julie Newmar is. I love awesome. that. But I like, mean, did you see Tu Wong Fu? Like, there's a fucking reason. You know what I mean? I, I get you. I get you. I just was yeah. like, when I was like, I'm going to watch this yeah. Batman, I want to watch the Eartha Kid episodes because well, she's so fun. You didn't happen to watch any of the Green Hornet Batman crossover episode, did you? I did not. Uh, the Green Hornet and Kato is very much a Batman story. It's like a rich guy who dresses up in an outfit and... <laughs> And Kato is his chauffeur. I don't know if he's supposed to be Chinese or Japanese in the comic. I don't know. But it's his it's his Asian like manservant who's who's his chauffeur. And in the TV show, he was played by Bruce Lee. I'm a huge fan of Bruce Lee. And this is where the racial politics come in. So they did a two-part crossover of the Green Hornet meeting Batman. And they were going to have the Green Hornet and Batman fight. And it was going to be a standstill. Because you know, it was the classic hero trope of, we don't know that we're both good guys, so we're going to fight. And then we'll resolve our differences in the end and go get the bad guy. So we're going to have this big fight scene. And the Green Hornet and Batman were going to fight to a standstill. And Robin and Kato were going to fight, but Robin was going to win. And the, the story goes, Bruce Lee got the script and saw that he was scheduled to lose. And he, he told the TV guys, he's like, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to happen. And they're like, well, that's what's going to happen, Bruce. And he goes, so then Bruce Lee started, we'll call it a rumor, that he was really going to fight during the film and that he was not going to pull his punches and he was going to take Burt Ward out. And Burt Ward, who played Robin, he lost his mind. He was, he was terrified, as I think any reasonable person would be if you heard that Bruce, Bruce Lee was, was going to beat, beat you up. Ass. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the TV company, they they folded and because Bruce Lee was spreading this rumor around, they're like, Bruce, please don't kill Burt Ward. We'll have it be a draw. And Bruce Lee was, because his whole thing was like, no one is going to believe. No. Because Bruce Lee wasn't Bruce Lee, but he was a known quantity. He's like, yes. no one is going to believe that this kid is going to, like, no one's going to believe that. No. So so they they rewrote the script so that it would be a draw between the two of them. <laughs> and that, that appeased, and Bruce still wasn't happy about it, but it no. appeased him enough but i love that story that he he started a rumor and who knows maybe maybe he didn't start a rumor he might very well have fucking done it i don't i don't know but yeah so anyway i just wanted to tell that story that's a great story no that's anecdotal and that's gonna stay in but to circle back to the women yes wonder woman hit like first wave and second wave okay i don't know what you mean by second wave oh feminism oh oh man okay so i started reading the book about the creation of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore, I think is her, her name. So I think we, we need to expand on this because we've we've intimated and, yes. and referenced the yes. origin a lot. So basically Wonder Woman was created in the early 40s by a man named William Moulton Marston. Well, he's credited with creating her, but it is thought that Jill Lepore posits in her book with a lot of documentary and, uh, documentation and anecdotes to support it, that the women of William Moulton Marston's life were not just the inspiration for Wonder Woman, but they wrote it. I think he's gone on record for saying, but that they also aided in the creation of the character. But William Moulton Marston was married to... A woman named Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth Marston. But they had sort of like their ward, right? Uh, there was an, a, a younger woman of age, but just younger yeah. than, than William and his wife, who was actually the, the niece of Margaret Sancher, the yeah. founder of Planned Parenthood, yep. um, that they often lived with. For example, like she would stay with them for, for long, like years and then go off and then come back. They had a long term polyamorous relationship. They all raised children together. And they all raised children together. William had kids with both, both of them of the women. And women raised um, both of the kids. They just raised the whole brood. Yeah. But William Marston had a lot of theories about, well, I used to remember this a lot more specifically, but he very openly believed that women were the more powerful of, of the two binary sexes, where the thought to be two binary sexes, right? Because people weren't talking about trans openly then, right? So out of the yeah. two sexes that women were, were the strongest and that society would be better if women were in the forefront of society. And he also had this theory about, I don't think he called it bondage per se, I don't remember what he called it, but he believed that a man's true strength could only be found in the strength to submit to a woman. Mm-hmm. So like through bondage, a man could become stronger by, by you know, admitting his vulnerability and, su- and submitting to a woman, which is like, someone to be writing openly about that shit in, in 1943 is, yeah. is mind-blowing. Yeah. 
That is. And he, he put all this into the creation of Wonder Woman because, and this has not, this is nothing that has stayed consistent, but her bracelets, you know, the bracelets that she bing, 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 they're actually called the bracelets of submission in the comic book. That's what they're called. <laughs> in the true origin of Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman is one of those characters in comics who has changed a lot. I think now the Wonder Woman comics are some of the better comics out there. And I think they're doing great things with the character consistently, finally. But they're called the bracelets of submission because she is so powerful that she has to keep the bracelets on to restrain her own strength. That they've gotten, they had gotten away from that for a long time. But, you know, basically in the comics now, she's a demigod and, yeah. you know, she would be too powerful unless she, she wore those Aww. bracelets. So, you know, and her ultimate weapon, right, is this lasso of truth where anyone who is caught in in the lasso will be compelled to tell the truth. And I think they did an amazing thing in the Wonder Woman movie that Patty Jenkins so wonderfully directed a few years ago is that when uh, Chris Pine, he's one of the white Chris's, but damn, he's good. He's one of the best ones. He's one of the best white Chris's ever. They did this thing where when Wonder Woman had him bound in the lasso, Hot. not only was he compelled to tell the truth, but it, it hurt him. It burned him. Mm. Um, I don't remember that, but he was like, why is it so, why is it so hot? And they, they'd never really, uh, to my knowledge, they hadn't explored that in the comics. The heat of truth. Right. So so it's super interesting. And in the comics, there was a period of, a long period of time where if Wonder Woman, one of the only ways to subdue her and make her powerless was to bind her in the lasso of truth. Mm. And there's and there's a lot of images in the comic of her always being bound. She's always chained to something. And if like she's chained by a man, I think that was part of the her vulnerability. Like, uh, you know, if a man could subdue her. So there's a lot of bond that's inherent in Wonder Woman. And you were trying to bring up another topic, but I thought we needed to expand on that so people knew what no. we were talking about. That is, I mean, it all bleeds in. And like the point I was trying to make is that I think the comic book, the the launch of the comic book of Wonder Woman is happening simultaneously with the creation of Planned Parenthood and the first wave. Feminism. feminism. Right. And then Wonder Woman fell out of favor. And then the 70s, it's... And Gloria Steinem. Yeah. Who created Ms. Magazine. And for the first issue of it, she put Wonder Woman, put her on the cover of the magazine and said that this is a feminist icon and we need to bring her back. And she helped uh, usher in the, the third phase of, of Wonder Woman being, being or the second phase of Wonder second Woman phase, being. I would say, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, in a, we're in a big third phase right now. So Yeah, and I want to like talk about what I just saw. For, and like, I can only speak on like my own like personal feelings as like a femme person watching this is that I feel like even though the writing had to kind of appeal to a more- We're talking about the, we're talking about the Linda Carter Wonder Woman? No, we're talking about Linda Carter. Carter. We're talking about Linda Carter. We're not talking about, yeah, which I also have not seen, so I cannot speak on any. You haven't seen Gal Gadot? I'm sorry. You're a Jew. You gotta watch it. I feel complicatedly. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that while it's certainly like def the writers were like making a conscious effort to make this appealing to to boys as well and like putting her in you know her her classic little outfit with the perky breasts yeah, I, and the, all I of that. I appreciate her outfit so much more now, uh, which it's it's a more of like a warrior skirt. It's like yes, much more similar to like feels, the three hundred style. It's yes, not a fucking bikini. Which I'm like, feels, yeah, I wish the skirt was a little longer, but I'm happy. Like, well, there's a funny line that they have when she's like walking the streets of New York almost immediately after, where she like kind of beats up some robbers and the guy like the guy from the bank like comes out and then he's like that she did it the woman in the bathing suit and she's yeah. completely unfazed everyone's gawking at her and everyone's she's like, like i'm fucking this, here and she's just she's high just, and like waving at people love it. like what i found myself very compelled by more so than watching the batman when there's female homosexuality like the girls who all live on the island. On Paradise Island, yeah. On Paradise Island. Like, even though, like, oh, they're all, like, dressed up in their little outfits and everything, like, very much for the male gaze, there's something inherently sapphic about Paradise Island. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's an island of uh, immortal women <gasps> where no men are allowed. So, and they're all tall. <laughs> and they're all beautiful and super fit and, like, bathing and hanging out and yeah. doing whatever. So, like, they fucking. And I guess the way, the thing I appreciated just, like, as, like, a person in the world who has also occasionally been an object, I did appreciate oh, okay. how, like, there was kind of this, like, weird kind of um, dialectic happening of Wonder Woman being so for the the male gaze and also having this rich inner life and being like a fully fleshed out character. She, she totally in the male gaze, but not the least bit affected by the male no, gaze. No, she's not a, that's <laughs> it. She, and I can see why as like a, uh, as a young person growing up when you didn't, that would have been shocking to watch. That would have been very intriguing and such a turn on. Cause it's, it's, you know, like now we would say that she's living her best life or she's living her power, but it's like all these people gawking at her 
old ladies gawking at her, being like, how dare she? And men being like, hubba hubba. She's strolling down the street, looking amazing, unbothered. Unbothered. Unbothered, right. So Wonder Woman, her sexuality, regardless of how she's been portrayed in in media, in terms of of the origin of the character and what's being true to the character, is her sexuality has never been part of her power set, if you will. Yes. Absolutely. It's separate. Without going, I just think you'll appreciate this. So basically there's a, there's a, what we call an Elseworld story. It's like not part of normal DC continuity called Superman Red Sun, which is this amazing comic book where he landed in communist Russia instead of in Kansas. So it's what happens if Superman is communist. Oh boy. And there's a communist version of Batman and Wonder Woman meets Superman and she decides to like aid him in his great socialist vision. Right. So they recently made, they recently made an animated film of it. That's pretty good. And you can rent that on like whatever, you rent things on. The comic is a great read too, with great art. And what's super fun is that there's a scene in the cartoon, which is not in the comic. The comic came out many years ago. The cartoon, like I said, just came out this year, I think. Well, who knows what year it is anymore? But Wonder Woman meets Superman at this like ball that Stalin is throwing or something. And Superman basically makes an overture to her. And she's like, Clark, I live on an island full of women. No. but you made such a good point though that wonder woman's sexuality isn't tied up in her power whereas catwoman sexuality is like it's always been something that she's had to use and frank miller who i don't know if you know frank miller is but he is one of the most influential comic creators of all time in 1986 he released a book called batman the dark knight returns Mm -hmm. which changed the way we think about batman forever right and it also changed the way people think about the comic book genre forever but when frank miller wrote batman year one he was the first author to write catwoman as a black woman and also wrote her as a sex worker from the Skid Row area. But it was super interesting to see that version. And it's a great version, but Cat, but whether it's that version or any other version, Catwoman has always had to or chosen to or been put in a position to, depending on how much agency they're giving the character in that decade, to use her sexuality to further her aims yeah. for good or ill. Uh, yeah. But again, Wonder Woman, maybe the only... Yeah, does she ever do that? No, she, and she never would. I mean, I think I think there are other characters who, who have never done it, but Wonder Woman certainly, I think, might be and please some nerd correct me if I'm wrong but I think she was probably the first and most consistent character to never really do that well then I want to tie it back to something that we did say is that like the creation mm-hmm. of Wonder Woman does also live within like a BDSM realm and like there's representations of queer her in, realm in and a, a queer in a uh, queer BDSM realm. realm yes like all of that kind of subculture she was birthed from and exists from and all of these images of her bound and all of these things it's all like part of that so like to say that she doesn't use her sexuality is like kind of not true, but it's not in the same way that right. Catwoman uses. Right, it's not. It's not in a way that we traditionally think of someone using sexuality, which yeah. is in a way of seduction, right? Yes. Which is in which is in the threat of of giving sex or like withholding of sex. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because Wonder Woman is a holistic yes. hero. Like yes. her her female identity is very much part of who she is, and yep. she refers to everyone as sister and part of a great sisterhood. And yep. But then, great. yeah, the freedom I think of be- being then a villain is that you get you do you get to behave badly and you get to have yeah. rougher like, edges, what would we is, yeah what would we think if there was a female superhero who used her sexuality the way catwoman does right because catwoman's like an anti-hero like she's yeah. a good guy now but she's always she wants to steal shit and you can't help but root for her <laughs> i mean that's just like a weird thing about catwoman but would we accept uh, a female hero like in a black and white sense of in a binary sense of hero and villain who was so forward with her sexuality all the time could could we have like a, a seductress who's a hero like would we would that be allowed I would love to let that question hang in the air. Great. That's how we wrap up. I have two quick questions for you. You said earlier in your life that you hadn't received the talk yet. Did you ever receive the talk? Oh, yeah, I absolutely did. So, oh, well, I don't think I've ever told the story to a wide audience. Uh, my mom, Sue, was an amazing, amazing woman. I really, I really hit the fucking jackpot with moms. I miss her <laughs> every day. But so my dad died when I was eight. So I was, you know, certainly for, for a boy, like the first eight or nine years are the maternal years. And then you enter the paternal years, right. In terms of like, who's the favorite parent and the stuff you need to learn from them. So my dad died right when I was on the cusp of that, which I still have a lot of conflicted feelings about not blaming him, but like, you know, feeling bad that I didn't take more advantage of having a dad when I did, but I was a mama's boy and who then became a lifelong mama's boy. I was probably in, how old is junior high? Like 12 through 14. Great. So that's when my mom had versions of the talk with me. And I certainly remember when I was little and I would get like the random erections that boys get. Yes. When you're little, like you'd just be not doing anything remotely. You're just like, just sitting on the couch and all of a sudden like, bing. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> I remember at one point asking my mom what was happening and she's like, it's practicing for a living, <laughs> which is, I think is a great, like that's what's happening. It's practicing. It's just keeping the muscle fresh. So, you know, in however many years you're ready to use it for me. <gasps> Podcasting uh, is an oral medium. So you cannot see that my jaw just yeah, fell to the floor. <laughs> why did your jaw fell to the floor when I said my mom said there was practicing? I've never heard it described like that before. It's great, right? And I really like that. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. So I, I was in junior high when my mom had the talk with me. And also my mom, so right, weed was very much illegal at the time. And my mom was like, look, there are things in this life that you're going to want to try. And I want to make sure that you are informed and you are safe. So this is what weed about and this is what sex is about. So if you want weed, and I don't think she called it weed. She probably called it grass or marijuana because she's a child <laughs> of the 60s. She was like, you let me know and I will get it for you. So we make sure that it's not the good shit. My mom wasn't going to say the good shit, but you know, so it's not laced with anything, right? Yeah. But also I grew up in the South Bronx in the 80s, right? With women, she was like, she bought me a Playboy. So I could see what an idealized naked woman looked like, but what a naked woman looks like. And she could be like, this is this thing. And this is this thing. Yeah, she can, if she's there it. to explain that for you. Yeah. That's, that's so healthy. You know? Um, so yeah, so I bought, I brought the Playboy to, to school. I remember being in the, in the gym room, in the gym locker room, the other boys being like, your mom got this for you. <laughs> and like, you know, it was, they both teased me for it and thought it was really cool. But now it's probably jealousy because my mom was awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So yeah. So that, so I had the talk. So that was when the talk probably happened. That is an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that's like a, that's a blueprint right there. Yeah, no, I'm going to pass that shit on. That's, that's great. All right. My I'm last gonna... question. It's a, it's a loose one. Did that do it for you? Did, did, <laughs> pod, did this podcast do it for you? Well, as, as I would say to any partner, <laughs> did it do it for you? Because ah! I'll, I'll do it again if it did. <laughs> Well, that did it for me. Hope that did it for you. Thank you so much for listening. That Do It For Ya is hosted and edited by Aurelia Grierson to the best of their ability. It is produced by Dante Tapo and Chandler Parrott-Thomas. Eleanor Hobson is our media and marketing manager. Our theme song is by Eric Solis, and our visual design is by Margaret Chambers. That Do It For Ya is a sex-positive podcast with naughty words and mentions of characters I do not own. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at That Do It For Ya. Be sure to tell your friends about us, rate and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and if you're interested in becoming a monthly donor, you can go to patreon.com slash that do it for you pod to join our horny little community.